calling all beans, y'all. Let's get it. DJ, I've been wanting to get this brother on since December of 2021 when I first heard him on with Andy chilling like McGrillin. But before we get to that, I got to introduce the Cab family because we got two of the new members on tonight and they're going to bring it. But first, we got to go to the money man whose hair, you know, Shane's not here. So you guys think I'm going to, but Nathan's hair looks great. Good evening, Nathan. Hey, how's it going? <laughs> Good. How are you? Did you bring the pipe tonight? I did. Uh, okay. Pipe is here. Okay, because Doctor Masters gonna want to see some of that. Yeah, you know, because y'all both academian, you know, type brothers. And Absolutely. let's let's bring on uh, our guest host tonight from the secret knowledge, Miss Allison. How's it going, Hello. my friend? Hello. Woo! Not like half, but but I'm here. Only half of secret knowledge is here. Shane, I wish you were here, brother. Uh, I really do. I can't wait to talk to you. I can't wait to talk about the project that they mm -hmm. alluded to on text today yeah. that I know nothing about. Yep, mm. he's recording for it right now. <laughs> Super secretive. I love it. Yes, and our newest member of the Calling All Being show. Party people, put those hands together for Stephanie at UAP Experiences. Thank you. Glad to be here with you guys. Yes, yeah. ma'am. Good to have you with us. We so excited with the energy. And you know what? Everybody's hair looks great. Uh, ex ex oh, except. Uh, hmm. Anyway, so, all right. So let's talk <laughs> about, uh, we're going <laughs> to, let's talk about this. <laughs> Thank you, Nathan. <laughs> Nathan's feeling me, man. He's an empath like me. All right. <laughs> so I, I've been dying to have this gentleman on right here. He is a professor of anthropology at Montana Tech. Okay. And what I'm trying to say is if you got the money, he got the time. And if you don't have the money, he still has the time. Party people, put those hands together for Dr. Michael Masters! Woo! Yes! Can I get a hand? Dr. Masters! Hello. Welcome to the show. Good to have you with us. Thanks. Yeah, that was quite the introduction. Yes, I mean, how can you not be pumped to talk some time travel after that? Do it. That was great. We're still working on the pyrotechnics. We're going to get that. <laughs> We're not going to have no sweet. Michael Jackson. We don't want your Jerry Curl going on fire or any of that. So we got to be Bad. careful of that. But, man, uh, Dr. Masters, I heard you on with Andy McGrillen, and I messaged him straight away when I heard that last year. I really, really liked the fact of the way that you are able to put these very complex topics into lay layman's terms that like meatheads like myself can understand. Uh, and so we're really, really happy to have you on, sir. Yeah, thanks. Are you, you talking about um, that UFO podcast? Yes, sir. That's the one. Yeah, okay. I didn't know Andy's last name. That's, that's good to know. Yeah, when he comes on, we call the that up. His name's Andy McGrillin, so we call that episode... Chilling with McGrillin because we have a little bit of a street vibe going on in the show. I, I like it. I like and, that a lot. And we have the academics. We have uh, professorial individuals like yourself, like Nathan at the bottom. I also want to introduce you to 
basically brand new members of Calling All Beings as two of our members. Uh, Deb is at a wedding tonight. Uh, and Kevin is still working. Uh, both those guys are therapists. Uh, and and uh, so we couldn't have them on. But thank God we have some new members. So let me introduce you to Allison up top. She has a show called The Secret Knowledge. Oh, cool. And that, that explains the TSK, I guess. Yes, yes. TSK for sure. Got it. Got yep. it. It's an acronym. And she was also taught in college like yourself. Uh, Stephanie down below from the aviation industry like myself. And uh, she's our newest member of CAB. Awesome. Yeah, so. my, my family owned and operated an aerospace machine shop in uh, Southern California. And I am an experiencer. So oh, awesome. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm very interested to hear what we have going on today. And I have yeah. one burning question. So hopefully we'll work that in. We got to right. get to it. But right now I got to turn it over to the money man. So let me give you over to the capable hands of my co-host, the brother from another, my co-creator of this show, Money Nathan. Thanks, DJ. Dr. Masters, great to have you with us. Uh, for those of folks who are listening, uh, either now or later, uh, the book that you've written that uh, a lot of folks are familiar with is Identified Flying Objects, uh, which focuses pretty heavily on the future human hypothesis. Um, before we get into the questions, I wanted to say thank you for your willingness to, to research this, to publish on this, uh, to pursue this as a curiosity. Um, and from what I understand, uh, that effort has been has received a warm welcome in in academia, and that's not nice to hear. Um, yeah. So, what uh, you know for you in particular, for those who may not be as familiar, like what for you is uh, kind of compelling about the future human hypothesis when it comes to UFOs and I think grays in particular. Yeah, I mean, I think it does help explain a lot of lingering questions surrounding the UFO phenomenon. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, when I wrote that book, it mostly centered on these long-term evolutionary changes in, uh, in the hominin lineage and looking at the greys in particular. But as I've been doing research for this new book, I've come across so many different case studies where experiencers describe uh, really just humans. I mean, the ones they look exactly like us. They speak vocally. They, um, you know, they still have hair. And so I don't know, it kind of made me rethink that, that approach. I mean, obviously I look at it in the context of temporal ancestry is what I call it. So the ones that are human, just like us are probably from a closer point in the future. Uh, and then the grays are probably eight, 10, 15,000 years out based on their, their cranial facial characteristics and other traits. So um, yeah, I've, I've kind of been looking at it over the course of, uh, the last hundred years, five different continents. And, and there's these patterns that emerge over and over with regard to the beans, their craft, their behaviors, indications of what their objectives may be. Um, and, and really so much of it fits with this extra tempestrial model, but in this new book, I also consider other um, other models as well, the ultra terrestrial, extraterrestrial, interdimensional, uh, and things like that, just to kind of compare and contrast. Because, um, you know, I, I, I don't think there's really one explanation. I don't think one model can truly capture all of the variation, but I do think this one adds uh, quite, quite a bit to the conversation as far as um, explaining who these beings are. Uh, when they might be coming from, what they're doing here, and, and a number of other questions regarding the phenomenon. 
I'm on mute there. So I had one follow up to that question uh, that I, just my own curiosity. So my understanding, and I have this could be to, I could have this totally wrong that uh, evolutionary biology is influenced by environmental factors and genetic mutation um, and selection. You know, uh, so I guess one thing that I'm curious about when it comes to the Greys being our future <clears throat> ancestors. Uh, you know, for example, I have glasses, right? And uh, my vision's not that great. Um, so yeah, maybe, same. you know, a few hundred years ago or a few thousand years ago, I may not have made, made it, you know, sort of very well. But in, in our modern sort of context, you know, a lot of things that would have been evolutionarily disadvantageous are still kind of moving into the or perpetuating into the gene pool. Uh, so I guess what I wanted to know is your, your take on the physiology of the grays, do you think that it's a result of um, kind of active genetic manipulation or potentially uh, some sort of dramatically different environmental change that may be in our future or maybe a combination of the two? Yeah, I would say possibly both of those and also just a continuation of the same long-term trends we've seen throughout the last six to eight million years of, of hominin evolution. Um, the bigger, rounder heads, neurocranial globularity, smaller faces, more retracted mid and lower facial anatomy, um, but still bilateral symmetry, pentadactyly, five digits on each hand, foot. Um, they're still tetrapods. They still have four limbs, which is a trait that goes back almost 400 million years on this planet. So, yeah, there's a lot of things that are, are consistent, but obviously they do look different. And yeah, I tried to avoid speculating about what might happen between now and then to cause us to look like that. There's certainly a number of things that could, both natural selection, as you mentioned, but also the fact that we're evolving to cultural environments now. In fact, culture is almost a bigger driver in human evolution specifically. And, and it's funny you mentioned the eyes and, and glasses, too. I, I wrote a, a scholarly paper about a hypothesis related to why we have such poor vision. But mm. and, and it's another example of, of both of those, actually, uh, natural selection and uh, sexual selection and also our environment, because one of the things that contributed to it, it's thought is that all the people that could see well went off to fight in the wars. And then they left all of the people with poor vision at home to have sex with all the women that were left back there with them. So we mm. contributed more of these negative genes, um, just as a result of some people dying with good vision, others staying back that uh, had poor vision and passing that on. So there's a number of cultural things involved. Um, there's also the process of self-domestication, which has been occurring over the last 12,000 years since the origins of agriculture, mostly. And that's caused a number of characteristics. I talk in the book about craniofacial feminization and other sort of shifts toward um, more gray alien-like traits, to be honest. I mean, a lack of pigmentation is a characteristic of domestication uh, across animals. So, yeah, there's a number of things I think that'll contribute to it. Um, but I, I try not to speculate too much about, you know, what's going to happen. Are we going to live in space, underground, anything like that? I think it'll just kind of happen organically. Um, but, yeah, I guess uh, looking back on it, we'll know. But looking forward, there's there's really no way to know yet. Right. Thanks. 
yeah, this is an interesting thing about why we look the way we do. Because my wife has actually asked me the same question, why I look like this. And that's when I usually go, you know, I'm going to go run and do some push-ups and sit-ups. So I, I, I don't have an answer for her. But, you know, we'll talk about that after the show, Doctor. But anyway, we're going to pass you over to our, our experiencer queen, uh, Miss Stephanie. Cool. Thank you. Um, well, to give you a quick synopsis, so about 1985, Three other family members and I all experienced a dark triangle craft that hovered and essentially followed our vehicle. And it also mimicked our vehicle, whereas we had stopped, backed up, and it mimicked us just the same as a, say, Tesla would have that same similar cognitive type behavior, So, yeah. which is extremely interesting. But uh, my mom, she was the um, vice president of our aerospace company she could recognize the fact immediately that this was something that was not of this earth. And us as children could recognize it as well because, I mean, we were walking around having like 3D images of DC-10s sitting on the table. So yeah. we as children knew that, you know, this was following us and it was not from here. Now, she ended up basically thinking that she scared the object away. We darted off. She called March Aerospace and... Uh, actually did refer it to the proper authorities and it was never followed up on. It's been haunting me my entire life, you know, and it just kind of started weighing on me the past few years. So my question for you is there's a potential for me to dive into going into regression. And it, it's, a, it's a, something to really ponder and think about because a lot of people are fearful of what could come through this regression. And my question for you mm -hmm. is, would regression intertwine with by way of say time travel for a human? Would that be some form of time travel where you actually do go back and you recall items that had occurred that you would, I have no idea that had happened. Would that be some form of time travel? Um, not in a strict sense. No, not in a physical sense, at least, because mm -hmm. you're, you're accessing memories that were formed. They just aren't consciously available to you. Mm -hmm. Um, so I, if you, I mean, even like I have uh, precognition, future memories mm -hmm. and, and while it feels like time travel in the block universe, it's, it's still not, I mean, that, those moments are there in the future. I just haven't lived them yet. I, for some reason, dream of them and have very, um, vivid understandings of those moments um not just yeah. seeing the things but the smells and who i'm with and just life situations it's really weird um but still it's it's still an aspect of your memory whether it be the mind or the brain um but i i do think that i have a, a question for you did you have missing time associated with that or there is potential that that had happened because when we had left the it was a ranch when we left the ranch we noticed the object we went about a city block without, I don't recall that. And then the object appeared again in a ravine. We were along a riverbed. So mm. there is potential that that could be missing time or it could have very well been that I was a little girl and I, you know, you have spotty memories. Yeah, definitely. You know? But there were, yeah. there's three of us that are alive. And I mean, my sister works for a software company. We've all got our heads on straight. It's something that I'm, you know, really trying to dig deeper down and, you know, talk to other experiencers about and find out information so we can get some answers. Yeah, I would definitely recommend doing uh, a regression session with yeah. a, a accredited 
individual. Um, they they seem to be from the research I've done really helpful. I mean, even if even if nothing happened, at least you know then, right. and uh, you can kind of assess it for what it was. But um, yeah, the, the next book I'm working on, which I guess I technically just finished, I sent it to be formatted this morning. Nice. I know. Thank God. That's nice. why I look so exhausted. Yeah, probably. Congratulations. Um, well but, worth it. Uh, yeah. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I was uh, still trying to be determined. Um, yeah. So a lot of the, the cases I came across were I mean, like Terry Lovelace, for instance, he was taken in the triangular craft um jerry wills was another one and and what seems to be the pattern that emerges from those is that these triangular craft um people commonly report um seeing gestating fetuses um a lot of people terry lovelace describes seeing a whole line of people being stripped naked taken into these rooms and mm -hmm. he was subjected to sperm extractions and a lot of people describe uh egg extractions and fetal extractions too mm -hmm. um so i i i sort of jocularly refer to these as a floating fertility facility because they seem to be very much centered on reproduction. And it, it, I hate the word hybrids and hybridization, but I, I don't have a better word right now. Um, so, yeah, I mean, if has your family experienced um, any, any sort of other things related to fertility or... Uh, yeah. And, you know, I did have that question also in the back of my mind is, did the movement that my mom performed, did it scare this object away? Because she turned off her headlights in trying to like conceal our car. It was very dark. So she, my mom is a smart woman. And so she wasn't just kind of like going to beeline away. She, she actually did stop the vehicle, turn off the headlights, try to, you know, almost hide. And, um, you know, the way that it did mimic our movements, I wonder, you know, did this object have other, you know, reasons to be there, you know, and, you know, it's concerning to me. And that's another reason why I want to find out these answers. But as far as reproductive, um, you know, you know, my mom did have a miscarriage as her first. She this was pr previous, though, as far as my sister and I, um, I yes, I, I have had one miscarriage recently. And, you know, I hadn't been trying before. It was my first. And, uh, you know. I'm going to be trying again. So, you know, hopefully that will be okay. But I have heard that trend also. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It, it is. It is really common. Um, you know, and that's, it's kind of a weird thing about the phenomenon. Uh, just, I, I don't know, like how, how you can justify doing things to people that mm -hmm. uh, seemingly are very traumatic. I mean, uh, with that said, in, in a lot of these cases, a lot of people do, Kind of come to grips with what's happened to them and even right. uh, recognize that they're they're part of a larger thing and and embrace that i guess mm -hmm. and and it, even the the dr edgar mitchell free study showed that when people have one experience and especially with the beings that are less human-like it's very traumatic for them but with repeated experiences they they come to embrace it and, and start longing for more interaction in fact whitley streber talks about that in his book supernatural um, so yeah, I, I don't know. It's, it's, it's hard. There's a lot of ethics questions, especially when you start talking about people's bodies and, right. and, and reproduction and, and making babies 
taking fetuses. It's it's all some pretty crazy stuff. I mean, it's wild. Um, Lou Elizondo talks about it from a criminal aspect. You know, you're talking about kidnapping and all that. I mean, personally, I mean, you know, personally, during my abduction experience, I offered genetic material and they telepathically said, no, thank you. I was a little offended. I'm not. You know, I would be, be too. Honest. Yeah. I mean, honest. I think you're a nice looking but, fella. I yeah. Would, I, mm-hmm. I was Nathan, you hopefully you could talk to me about this after because yeah, we can <laughs> we can get into it. Okay. <laughs> uh, but let me but uh, college anthropology, let me pass you over to the creative writing department up top and Miss Allison. Yeah, so so nice to speak with you. I'm really interested in how people formulate their belief systems. And I know from your interviews, one of your first introduction to to this material was being eight years old and hearing your father recount the story of seeing the uh, unidentified flying object. And I know that you, as a university instructor, as Nathan said earlier, um, because of your publication record, you haven't really been in the hot seat by delving into this particular topic. But I kind of like to know what happened in that between space and between your father having that experience and then you going so far into this material, how did, I mean, were you sold at eight years old and believing your father that the UFOs were likely aliens and then, you know, you decided or then your research showed that it might actually be future humans? Like, were you sold from that point on or has there been some other progression that has led you to formulating these ideas? Or delving into the material. Yeah, no, I mean, his experience was actually somewhat benign as far as this process goes, because really, I I remember hearing about it and thinking, oh, that's interesting. I didn't know UFOs were a thing. And then what what really uh, inspired me to pursue this was seeing Whitley Strieber's book up on the shelf um, of the living room, because it was... I was around the age of eight or nine when he bought that book and for some reason had it facing out into the living room. Um, and that's really when when I started thinking about this in the context of human evolution, just noticing off the bat how similar we are to and you're also eight, or eight years old at this point. You're eight years old when you're pulling that down off the shelf. Yeah, yeah, it was. And what's funny is I, I was just uh, hanging out with Whitley Strieber last month in Houston, and I had him sign that book. And I've actually got the cover of it up here on my shelf now because it was such a an inspirational moment. And I, I've talked to him on his show before, and he knows the story. And um, but yeah, no, that's when it that's when it I sort of had this sort of question in my mind, like, well, could they just be us? Um, are we related somehow? Is there a phylogenetic relationship there? So yeah, I mean, it was always in the back of my mind. And you could argue that I went to college to research that more, uh, specifically starting out in physics and then switching to anthropology late in my sophomore, early junior year. So, you know, I didn't just do those things because of this. I'm still interested in anthropology and human evolution's always been interesting to me and archaeology, paleoanthropology, forensics, all the different subfields. Um, but but it was definitely something I wanted to do. One of the and, and you know coming back to precognition, maybe I just had a memory of doing what we're doing right now that happened to be projected back to the eight-year-old version of me in that moment in time um, in this sort of self-consistent loop of cause and effect. So I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of 
been on my radar since I was eight, but his his actual encounter was a, a very small part of it, I would say. But you went into college with your belief system firm that it's either aliens or future humans? No, not at all. No, not at all. In fact, it's still not a firm belief system. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't really even think of it in the context of belief. I think belief is for things that can't really be understood. Uh, I see this as more of an evidence-based approach to a question um, using mostly observational, abductive reasoning, abductive and abductive approach to understanding this phenomenon in the context of sort of Occam's razor, what, what's the most parsimonious explanation. And this one seems to have the fewest assumptions. It also seems to explain the most... I would say the majority of the things associated with this, but there are still other areas where it, it maybe doesn't explain certain things. So, um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I went into college with the idea that are, are they us? And that's the main thing I focused on as a paleoanthropologist is looking at these long term trends, how we got to where we are. And if these carry forward, could we be them? Um, but never in the context of this is right, everything else is wrong, or, you know, I'm only looking for evidence for this and some confirmation bias capacity. It was just, it was the motivation for doing it. Um, and the more I learned about it, the more it seemed to make sense. And, and, and the same with this deep dive into the abduction phenomenon and contactee and experiencers experiences is the more I go into these different little rabbit holes, I find they're all connected and they lead me back to the same place. You know, I, I want to say actually to Dr. Masters and my colleagues in the audience, this happened within the, the, the last 48 hours and even within since the start of the show. But I come from the Hudson Valley in New York. I had a sighting uh, when I was about 14. And yesterday, James Iandoli, uh, if you don't know him from Engaging the Phenomenon, the host. Uh, happy birthday, James, by the way. Happy birthday. He turned 35 today. He said that he met a woman at a gas station, spoke about the hearings coming up and she told him of seeing a craft above Indian Point. So I happened to post on Facebook that Dr. Masters was going to be on with us in 30 minutes and one of my classmates from high school texted me hey Dave, which is my real name David, and it's like, hey Dave man, I never told him about this but I had a uh, sighting of a triangular craft coming over my house from over by Indian Point over the house. So this is mm. so proliferant so many people have had sightings. I mean, that's a lot of what Stephanie's mission is there is to to destigmatize this. And I, and I just wanted to throw that out there. That that there's no question there. My question for you is uh Dr. Masters is as when a craft it appears. So in in terms of a visual context if you, if we were looking up in the sky. So this is the beginning of an event in which your hypothesis is built. What does that look like? Uh, when when a when a craft appears, is that a? I've heard people uh, talk about a slit in the sky opening. Uh, how do you feel like that starts? What does that look like? Well, I mean, a lot of people describe different things. At night, it can be a light moving toward them, or they see it come down, or it's a small thing moving and then comes fast. Um, but a lot of times they just materialize too. They appear abruptly in the sky or, or disappear whenever they finish doing what they're doing, which is another one of those things that um, this model helps explain because that's exactly what we'd expect to see of a time machine. 
something that's moving in and out of our four-dimensional frame of reference. Um, I, I mentioned in the book, I think, that if something suddenly disappears from our three dimensions of space, it indicates it moved through the other, the only other known dimension of time, the fourth dimension. So I think that that sort of ethereal aspect of it, the materialization, dematerialization, mm -hmm. being able to move things through walls, people, able to abduct people through walls and roofs. Mm -hmm. uh, I think a lot of that can be explained in the context of the, the same technology that allows them to manipulate space-time. Um, also, the G-forces, these instantaneous accelerations and decelerations, if, if they are manipulating space-time within their little warp bubble, what we see as an ultra-fast acceleration may be very slow to them. Mm -hmm. It's just our frame of reference is separate from their frame of reference in the context of, of global space-time. So, um, yeah, the, I think the materialization, dematerialization, which is very common. I did a content analysis of the New Fork data for one year and found that there were something like 230 instances just in that year of, of this phenomenon where they appear or disappear. So, um, yeah, it can it, they can show up in a lot of different ways. But I think the fact that they do that relatively often is is indicative of their ability to manipulate space time. Yeah, I heard Andy ask you a question about the the fighter jet. They're watching their fuel mm -hmm. count and they're like, oh, wow, you know, like I had 30 minutes of fuel go, go off the, you know, I mean, they uh, fuel on a fighter jet aircraft. It goes very, very quick. I don't know what their pounds per hour are is. I know for us it would have been like 6,000 pounds an hour. I bet theirs is quite a bit higher. So and they, they usually have about an hour and a half of, of flight time, depending upon how much they use afterburners. So five minutes yeah. is quite a bit. And there was, uh, I think it was the former director of the CIA that said one of his pilot friends was stopped in midair, just that, froze well, in air. Woolsey, I think Woolsey yeah, said Wolsey, that. That's who it was. Deb, yeah. James Woolsey, that absolutely blew me away. But yeah. Dr. Masters, because Debs isn't here, Nathan is going to read one of her questions for her, and then he's going to ask his own question. Yeah, so uh, <clears throat> Deb, who yeah isn't with us this evening, her tag is at study of UAP study of UAPs. Uh, she asks, uh, "What does the everything is now concept mean to you?" Sounds like a block time kind of question. Yeah, it is. It's uh, it's kind of an age old debate in, in physics and philosophy. Is as you have pre presentists, the presentism is this idea that we only have now. It's the only thing that really exists um versus i just had the word in my mind a second ago uh eternalists who feel that more of a black time context where the the future those nows are just as real as this one is real as past nows and that tends to be the more uh conventionally understood way of of understanding time and space um it, it's funny too because it, i think it gets it this disconnect between our conscious understanding of time or the way we experience it versus uh the physical time the, the the physics of time if you want to call it that um where we can have these moments in block time but we only know of our experience in that moment and we share that moment with others um and we get a sense of like this presentist mentality even though it's not a real thing it's kind of an illusion um just based on probably the need and an evolved need to exist in our environment in the context of what's happening around us at any given speed. And, and I, I refer to this as biorelativity, where you can see that different animals have different rates of living. Um, you can even see it with your dogs. One of the reasons they, they live 
they don't live as long as us as they live faster. Um, but you can compare a barn swallow to a sloth, for instance. And they, they have different lifespans. They have different heart rates. They have different metabolisms. They experience time differently. Um, but it's still just an aspect of their consciousness or their, um, speaking of dogs, yeah. or, their, <laughs> or, or their way of understanding or fitting within the confines of their natural environment. And I think we've evolved a sense of time that works for us. Uh, maybe not for the planet so well, as I was thinking about earlier today, but it, right. it works for us. And we have a sense of now, even though it's it's really just this kind of ephemeral thing that doesn't exist. Um, but yeah, in, in the context of now, it feels like it's there. Same with free will. A lot of people ask me about free will, which doesn't really exist in the true sense of the word in block time, but it feels like it does. So I've started calling it feel will, which mm -hmm. makes me feel better about the fact that I feel like I'm making decisions, even if it's not a real, a real thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was going to ask you about that. Uh, so I guess related to this, uh, meditation is a pretty hot topic, uh, particularly when we're talking about consciousness and, um, you know, kind of consciousness being, uh, fundamental and, and those who meditate uh, often are, you know, kind of quieting the perceptual senses of the body. Mm -hmm. Um, and is, do you think that might be a kind of modality that allows us to, uh, change our experience of, of time? Time seems to be, at least as you just articulated, kind of trapped with or, or connected to this perception that we have. And if we can sort of turn those knobs down, maybe we can, uh, experience time in, in a different way. Yeah. I think it's almost about turning off time. A disconnecting this disassociative aspect of, of meditation, of ayahuasca, psilocybin, LSD, MDMA to some extent, um, it is really that that disassociation between whatever time is. And, and really within block time, it's, it's timeless. And I think as we leave our body behind, we're essentially entering this realm where you can move freely throughout time. Uh, you, you have all these people that have near-death experiences that talk about this ultimate freedom where they can move through time and space and and experience these things that you just can't with this this fleshy meat bag that we got to carry around for lack of a better way of putting that, I guess. Um, <laughs> That's but, another but, thing my wife called. I'm just kidding. Miss, she doesn't, <laughs> she doesn't but no, I, I think that, that that's that's real. And, and, and if you do meditate or you, you drop acid or whatever, you experience that you, you leave behind that, that realm that we live in where it's moment by moment. I have to be at the dentist at nine and then pick up the kids at noon. It's, 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 you know, much deeper than that, where you, you experience a, a, a timelessness that kind of frees you in some way. Um, but it, you can't live there, you know, you can't just stay in that that place you have to exist in this world or um i don't know actually i don't know what would happen uh, you're dead maybe yeah <laughs> do, do you like ascribe to kind of the donald hoffman perspective then on kind of the you know sort of the things that we see and experience that's just our desktop you know it's not really it's the the idealist versus materialist yeah i don't know it's a tricky one um it's not something I gave a lot of thought to. I was always a staunch materialist, but I went to this conference in Houston uh, called Opening the Archives. Jeffrey Krapel put it on, uh, a professor of philosophy and, and religious studies at Rice University. And and it was 
it was one of the most mind expanding, mind blowing experiences of my life. And I was forced to think about many of these things in, in ways I never had thinking about things I never had, let alone in different ways. So, um, yeah, I, I have kind of been uh, in a state of ontological shock over the last month trying to, to wrap that, my head around one of our favorite words. I'm sorry. Yeah. Go ahead. It's on our bingo Yeah, card. no, it's been it's been really interesting. And, and unfortunately, a, a lot of people shy away from challenging their worldview and, and the, their way of understanding uh, the universe, uh, which is a big part of this experience. People don't want UFOs to be real. They don't want to have to think about that and how they, how it fits in with their worldview. Um, and, and we, we even have ways of just shutting down conversations. I, I learned a new word the other day, like cognitive cliches or disassociative cliche or something like that, where you say like, um, you know, it's in God's hands or, mm -hmm. Uh, you know, all these things that just it shut is the what conversation. It is. it is what it is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I hate that. That's so lazy. No, because it's like, well, so we could lazy. explore this more. No, let's just not explore it, that it is what anymore. It, is, it, it makes my brain hurt, you know? And, yeah. and and it's a big part of what we're doing here, too. Uh, you mentioned about stuff, and I'm, I've been trying to do the same thing, is, is try to whittle away the stigma so we can talk about these things. And, and not just, you know, in an interpersonal context. I think it's great when we... Um, have people open up about their UFO sighting or, or more intimate experiences that they had. And, and I, I actually dedicate this next book to the brave people who do that. Cause as someone who's never had an experience, what, how am I going to, how am I going to study this or, or understand how or any of us can understand it if we don't talk about it. So I think it's really important that we whittle away that stigma so we can get more information that allows us to go deeper into this question and, and find more patterns and, you know, more ways of, of, trying to bring light to what is a, a very mysterious phenomenon. And do you, do you know how you honor Dr. Michael Masters when he comes on? You wear two watches, baby. Oh, See that? Yeah. We got time for you. Crazy. All right. I, so, like it. I don't, I don't even wear a watch. Well, I mean, Dr. I Masters, my, yeah. the view that's, I had that's of it. you, I'm going to cry myself to bed. Um, <laughs> let's get, uh, let's get Steph on. Then Allison has something that she is, just burning up. So go ahead, Steph, and then we'll get to Allison, please. Oh, yeah. Well, and I agree with you also. You know, the more that people come forth with their testimonials, they start evolving, coming out of the woodwork, and, you know, more people will begin to speak. And, you know, right now I'm getting them just on a, you know, a written testimonial. And I plan on eventually revisiting each person and seeing if they're willing to come on camera because it does form as some sort of a therapeutic type, you know, session when you do talk about this thing that you've been stifled from for so many years that people would ridicule you for. And now, you know, it's, it's clearly in the news, it's being actualized and, um, you know, it, it will become normal eventually. It is in our world because we all know, but, uh, you know, it, it's really, it's really cool to see that people are just starting to get more comfortable with sharing, and so yeah. thank you for doing what you do and dedicating your book to those people because they really truly are like they they're the heroes in my mind right now. Because, yeah, same. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. And, and, and the other thing too is, is with writing this book and you know, I, I feel kind of embarrassed in a way because I didn't really talk about abduction or, or contactee experience as much um, that obviously this next book is exclusively about that. Um, but it, it's funny because there's there's so much you can learn from it 
And I feel like we're at a point now that it's a slow process where like, yeah, these videos are real. Okay, UFOs are real. Wait, those are the same things people do when they're abducted. Why aren't we talking about that yet? So, right. and but in publishing this book, I ha- I got inundated with people who, many of whom actually were told that they are from the future. They're time travelers from the future. Um, who obviously that's sample bias because they reach out to me after having just published a book arguing that, but it's still, you know, interesting to see that, but all these other experiencers too, who feel comfortable talking to me about it. I've had a number of them that say, you know, I was really angry my whole life. I I really hated that this happened to me, but after reading your book and thinking, well, maybe these were humans, it somehow made me feel better. Like it's like going to the doctor as opposed to these others coming from a different planet and doing these things to me. So it kind of gave them a sense of acceptance or, or just something, some way of understanding it that made more sense, made them feel better. But without that, you know, I, I couldn't talk to them and, you know, maybe without any of us talking about it, it's just going to always linger in the background. But yeah, I think it's high time we bring the experiencer aspect of the phenomenon right up there with the Navy pilots and the videos and everything else. We, we should, it's all part of the same phenomenon. Why, why the hell aren't we talking about that? 100%. I agree. It's time for some vindication for everybody. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I agree. Especially those who had the most intimate, type of encounter the closest type of encounter i mean seeing something from your cockpit's awesome and we need to talk about that too but if you're you're there laying on the Mm -hmm. table that's that's important serious i love hearing those narratives i really do when i hear uh any abduction like uh, terry loveless's story gave me chills i would love to have him on just because it's i mean you know calvin um i don't know if you guys remember the gentleman from the Mississippi one, uh, Calvin Parker, yeah, Calvin Parker and his his Pascagoula. obviously his colleague, Pascal right? Charles Dixon, yeah, that was one of the Charles case Pas- studies yeah. I I examined in my new book. I, yeah, those, those those guys are hilarious. I Calvin Parker was at a he gave a talk at a UFO conference I was at in Phoenix, I think it was. Really funny guy, um, but yeah, it's really interesting case study. I, all of them, I mean, they're. they're you can learn so much from every single one. And and I think what's most important is to recognize all the patterns too, right. just all of the consistency across these. And of course, there's going to be variation. There's going to be outliers with any phenomenon of any variety, even within highly controlled experiments. But um, yeah, it, the more we talk about it, the more we learn. I agree. Hey, uh, before, before I pass it to Allison, do you think the fact that I'm bald could be representative, that I could be a more evolved intelligence? Like, yeah, that's actually probably why they didn't take your sperm is they already they're oh, already there, okay, man. Okay, you're too yeah, far. I'm you're too far in the future. Far, all right. They're like, wait, we got this, you know. Yeah, no, you should go make all the babies. I have uh, in my class. I talk about how our our third molar stopped coming in. Uh, some people just don't have it. And about 11 to 13 percent of the population doesn't have it. And. I always have people raise their hands to see in each class if that statistic holds. And you know, sometimes I'm like, y'all need to go make the babies because that's where we're going. It's an increasing trend. So, yeah, baldness, no third molar. Get out there, man. Get it done. I, I, I can neither confirm or deny right now, but I do have to pass it on to your academic colleague, Allison. Well, oh. I, I wanted to give Stephanie potentially an, an opportunity. I thought you were about to ask a follow-up. Did oh, you have sorry. something you wanted to, to add on or – you know, no, I'm good. We're, we're okay. good. It's a good segue. Thank you, though. Yes. Uh, okay. So 
At the beginning of the interview, you used the phrase that culture is becoming a larger drive of human evolution, um, especially in the context of ufology becoming more mainstream. That means it's going to have a greater uh, traction culturally. So could you say more about culture being a larger drive of human evolution and how that might be affected by the others? Yeah, um, well, I mean, you can go back to the first culture, the first preservable culture, uh, because chimps use leaves as sponges, sticks as anvils and hammers and things. It's likely we've been using tools long before three million years ago. Uh, they just don't preserve. But once we started breaking rocks against each other to make tools, it really changed our relationship with the environment where we're no longer just adapting or evolving to uh, the natural environment, but man-made environment. So with stone tools specifically, and also fire, it helped relax selective pressure for bigger teeth, uh, bigger chewing muscles, so our face could get out of the way of a growing brain um, because we could cut our meat, we could cook our meat and other foods. So so many things like that. Um, using dairy products, we've evolved to continue producing lactase, which breaks down lactose and milk and, and other dairy products. So there's there's numerous things like that. And the more we build these these cultural environments, the more we're going to be adapting to those. Um, so yeah, looking into the future, it, it's certainly likely that that will continue. Um, how? I, I don't know. I can't give specifics, but uh, there, there seem to be some unstoppable trends. The runaway brain is one. Uh, it has gotten smaller over the last 30,000 years, mostly in association with reduction in body size. Um, but there is indication that it will continue to not just expand, but change shape, mostly in the parietal lobes, the frontal lobes, moving out over the eyes and expanding mediolaterally. Uh, facial retraction. And again, these are traits we see in the grays further down the road. But yeah, it with with the the cultural changes the cultural trends that's probably going to be just as important um but it's hard to tell how that contributes specifically so when you refer to culture you mean like specifically the tangible elements that culture produces having an effect not those mm, more sort of unconscious cultural motivations well i don't know i think those are important too um Especially in the context of one thing I was thinking about today, I don't know if I can write about this, uh, but but it popped in my mind is is whether or not they use religion as some sort of litmus test to figure out if we're ready to understand who they are, what they're doing here. If they maybe interjected uh, ideologies into the past, and I'm I'm definitely not an ancient alienist or anything. This is just sort of a, a brainstorm I had today. If, if maybe if we get past like that, that cognitive shutdown of uh, it's in God's hands or, you know, we start to think because a, a lot of religious ideologies just channel you into the same mentality and mm -hmm. um, oftentimes a mentality that ignores other things, most things, uh, to be blunt. And and I think if if that that would be a good litmus test. And, and one thing that made me think about this, I'm not just pulling this out of nowhere, but there was a case that I talk about, one of the first case studies in my, my new book. Uh, Joan Bird also covered this one in, in her book, Montana UFOs, uh, where this guy, Udo Wartana, came across this, this human who came out of a, a disc-shaped craft uh, right here in Montana, actually, only about 60 miles from where I live. 
walked up to him. He said, oh, sorry, didn't know anybody was here. We try not to let people see us. Just needed some water for extracting hydrogen yes. to power their ship. And, and he got a tour of the ship. They showed him how everything worked with the electromagnetism, these counter-rotating flywheels and stuff. Answered every question he had except about religion. He was like, do you know about Jesus? And he said, we, we are not allowed to talk about that. That was the only thing he shut down. And I'm like, that's telling. You know, that's really interesting. And, and so I started thinking maybe maybe if, it, if we evolved to some sort of post-religious uh, or, or not even religious, but just having some way of um, gauging whether or not we're ready for contact, if, if that might be one of them um it, it, whether they're extraterrestrial extra tempestrial whatever like it, I, I don't know i i guess i was and, and also killing people religious people kill each other a lot if maybe you know they want to minimize our impact on their earth in the future here here's some religion here's some monotheism for you go kill each other and and destroy the earth slower um yeah I, I don't know there's been a lot of questions in my mind lately i'm just kind of throwing them out there for some reason probably shouldn't <laughs> well, I appreciate you making sort of a determination about what you would be willing to put on paper and what you're willing to sort of like speak about, just kind of riff. And yeah, I know, but I just thought about that too by speaking about it. I'm also, but I'm I'm not claiming anything right. either. It's just sort of sharing ideas, which is the mm -hmm. whole point of this. That's why we're here. So That's yeah, why maybe we're here. Maybe it's not so bad. That's why we're here, Money Nathan. <laughs> Yeah, well, I'm I'm gonna piggyback right on top of that then. So, uh, yeah, so my uh, my understanding of evolutionary biology, I think, must be outdated. So uh, maybe you can help me understand it a little bit better. Uh, what, but my sort of the way I was taught was that we're you know we're given sort of the genes that we have. Our DNA is essentially kind of a fixed thing, and if we uh, procreate, we're passing that code. We're, we're blending that code with who we procreate with, passing that down to the next line. Uh, that so the the assumption here is that there's very little change from the moment of birth to the moment of conception in that organism. But from what I'm understanding in this conversation, please correct me if I'm wrong, is that not only does the environment uh, impact our our kind of genetic uh, expression, but but even the our our cultural experiences have an in, a potential impact on, on our genetic expression. And so that, that to me helps explain what I was confused about earlier, that if, if we're not having, uh, if we're still able to just, if, if uh, sexual selection basically isn't kind of cutting off, uh, you know, people who have disabilities or whatever, and they're not able to procreate. And I was, I was not, sure how we were going to get to the grays, but it sounds like we get to the grays because of other factors that aren't the traditional, you know, you just can't have a baby or, or the environment is so inhospitable that some strange mutation allows one genetic line to survive and therefore procreate versus the other. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot, uh, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, we, one of the things is that it's not necessarily that we're evolving Always, we do in many cases, but not that we're always evolving to cultural environments. It's that by removing ourselves with culture from the natural environment, there's other things that can happen. You can have more genes that pop up that aren't being selected against, that aren't being eliminated, like we were talking about with vision 
earlier uh, in a natural environment. And this is what I argue in my 2012 paper, too, is in a natural environment, we wouldn't even have nearsightedness. We wouldn't have astigmatism because we'd be weeded out of the population. But making this buffer, which is more in the lines of the self-domestication aspect of it, as other things can pop up. You can have uh, one thing I talk about in this new book, too, which dovetails well with Jim Penniston's situation and what he was told um, during his Rendlesham encounter is that they're having problems with reproduction. And I arrived at that conclusion completely independently. I was getting ready to publish my book. I was on a, a podcast. Somebody said, have you heard of Jim Penniston? Research that a little bit. I'm like, holy, holy shit. He's the, they told him that. Uh, and I, I had these reasons why that made sense as far as past trends. Again, I try not to speculate too much about the future, but based on past trends, one of them being that through in vitro fertilization and all of these fertility therapies, we're helping people that normally shouldn't be able to reproduce. And I hate using that word. It sounds insensitive, but who wouldn't normally be able to naturally to still reproduce and put those genes in the future generations. And there's a number of other things too. It's not just based on that. But if that maybe contributes to, along with genetic homogenization, which I did talk about in my first book, contributes to eventual difficulties with the one thing that matters in evolution the most, reproduction. It's the only thing that matters, putting your genes into the next generation. But if we have taken ourselves out of that relationship with nature to the extent that we have to create new babies, we have to. And and I also make a number of cases why exogenesis, regardless of how you feel about it in the context of, you know, growing the baby, holding the baby, could have a number of really beneficial impacts for for gender equality in the workplace and, and all of these other societal aspects of of the future that maybe is just the way we do it at that point. The big head, small hole problem, which I talked a little bit about in my last book, all of these things seem to indicate that at some point in the future, we're just going to have to manage our own reproduction because everything's sort of taking us in that direction where it's become so separated from the natural way of doing it that and and you know maybe even these reports of the the ultra grays the really short ones the big heads that don't even have external genitalia you know maybe we get to the point where we don't even need them which is a horrible thought but um i don't know there's there's clearly a focus on reproduction there's clearly clearly a focus on gametes that I think we need to focus on because it's it's so ubiquitous throughout these 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 accounts. I've been confused about that though because to me, the advances that we've seen with our own genetic technology, I guess I'm I just don't understand why we would be so advanced in in our uh, you know sort of aerospace or physics understanding and just on the current trajectory that we're on with things like CRISPR, like why we wouldn't be able to have a mastery over our biology. But that's, that's maybe part of the problem. And that's another thing I argue in two different sections of this new book is that this hubris that we get from that. What if we screw something up? You know, the, one of the first cases, there's a guy in prison right now in China because he tried to take the, the CCR5 gene in these children, these two twin children, and and give them the CCR gene, essentially, which protects you against HIV. It evolved during the Black Plague uh, and, and imbues about one or two percent uh, of, of Europeans with with immunity to HIV. And he wanted to put these this in these children, which sounds 
great. Sure, do that. Didn't tell anybody. Screwed the whole thing up. Now they have a heritable trait that never existed in the human population before. Right. Because he was trying to do something that he thought was good. Screwed it up. What, what if we do that with something else? And, and these, these genes, even if it's a somatic cell characteristic, they can still migrate into, especially with CRISPR, because it's not this all-knowing thing. We create it. We can screw something up. It can do something we didn't expect. It gets into a heritable characteristic. What's that going to do? Maybe we do it to ourselves. Maybe, maybe we sow the seeds of our own destruction. It's not these natural processes. It's something that we do that we screw up trying to make designer babies or, or cure some yes. disease. And then we create this situation that we can't go back from. And all we can do is go back and sample gametes from the past before we screw things up. And, and there are parents that will do that. They will try to uh, genetically engineer their child to be perfect and be the most successful child on the planet, as opposed to just imbuing them with their values and letting uh, nature take its course. Yeah, um, I, w I wouldn't be surprised. And, and right now it's illegal, but it, who knows what the future holds. And, and there's always going to be rogue scientists like that dude in China that just do it anyway. And, oh, I know. Like, uh, I was, you know what? I was thinking of Rob. I was thinking of uh, David Hansen and Hansen Robotics, but that's a whole nother. That's a whole nother matter to get into. Um, but I, um, I was going to mention to you about consciousness. We, we we were speaking about that, and in our community. There are a lot of people who talk about developing consciousness. Anjali, who, by the way, uh, asserts that those, and not only her, but other experiencers have said those smaller grays are not sentient like the taller ones. So I don't know if you've heard that. Yeah, I have. Um, and, and I kind of misspoke. I caught myself as I was saying it. But it almost seems like the taller ones are the more evolved kind of leaders of the whole operation. And and some have even argued that the smaller ones seem to have robotic characteristics. It could be AI as well. Right. Yeah, definitely. The ones who picked up uh, Calvin Parker and Charles Hickson were definitely AI. Mm -hmm. There's no doubt about that. But the, not all of the small grays are described that way. Uh, yes. But it is sometimes mentioned. And, and you know, if we're going to make robots, we're already doing it. We're going to make them in our image. So the fact that they still look like us a little bit. Although I think you make them bigger if they're they're doing all of the abducting and stuff. That's one of the things that makes me think that they're not robots as they're 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 I, I don't know I, i'd expect like the rock or hulk hogan or something <laughs> to come out you know with glowing red eyes <laughs> well uh, david hansen's uh, enhanced robotics humanoid robots are scary looking but good uh, but i don't want they should be <laughs> i don't want to i don't want to go there right now but the, the the area of consciousness i was wanting to go with you is a lot of people in our community are trying to develop their consciousness to connect. Do you think that, that, that your consciousness can be developed to a point where you can be on plane with the, uh, these more advanced intelligences? Do you think it's something you can develop or it's just you have and that's what you have? Uh, the human brain is extremely malleable. I think you can absolutely train your brain to do anything. Uh, numerous studies, I, I collabor collaborated with the Laboratory of Neuroimaging at UCLA Medical School for a while. Um, I think they're at USC now. But there, there was so much research coming out of there showing how taxi drivers, musicians, all of these people that use a very specific part of their brain, they saw it grow in these functional MRIs and, and regular MRIs. So the brain's definitely adaptable. I, I think, though, there is a disconnect between the brain and the mind. 
I, I think some people innately have a strong mind, uh, but I definitely think you can develop that too. Um, uh, it, it's funny because I get asked about consciousness a lot. I, I study uh, biological things, mostly dead things, um, especially fossils. But the UFO phenomenon takes you into all of these realms where you also have to consider this and that and, and everything else. And consciousness is definitely one of those things because there does seem to be some sort of uh, like what about DMT, for instance, the little beans, the elf type beans that people see so commonly during their DMT experiences. Is that part of this phenomenon? Sometimes they describe things that could maybe be considered similar. Mm -hmm. Not that that explains all of it, of course, because most of these experiences have never even touched DMT or heard of it, probably. Um, but I don't know. What What is the overlap there, if there even is any? I, I would love to explore that more because I think it's something we, we should definitely be looking into as well. Yeah, I, we had a guest come on that basically uh, asserted to us that everything is consciousness. It's all consciousness. And I said, well, yeah, pan, uh, pan consciousness. And, and, and I will say that consciousness didn't jam the F-A-18's radar. So no, that's the that's, thing. That's, I know. And when people get all John Keel and they're like, no, I mean, it's all an illusion. It's not all an illusion. Like, right. Yeah. Exactly. Some aspect of it is very much physical. Yeah. It, real. But also but also not physical. You know, we can't just discount that because that is a part of this. But this is a thing that the radiation poisoning people get the anal probes people get try try to tell somebody that got something stuck up their butt that this isn't a physical thing it's you know consciousness is, man you were it, not probe. it's a consciousness probe that, how does that make sense somebody <laughs> stuck thoughts up your ass like no it's this this happened to them this is a real physical thing we need to acknowledge that. We we also need to not acknowledge the the consciousness aspect and the weirdness of of these things. And mm -hmm. I don't know. It, it all needs to be on the table. Agreed. It all needs to be talked I about. I, I totally agree. I I love that. You know, in interacting with all these people that you see on the screen with you here and others that we've had on, you know, my knowledge of consciousness and and the hypotheses that have entered my mind, including yours, uh, has broadened what i thought i knew about ufology so you know we're all learning uh but let me pass it over to my home girl steph thank you and actually perfect segue because i am noticing a trend from uap experiencers that soon after they experience they have witnessed paranormal and a quick example would be uh my brother-in-law he witnessed a green glowing orb flying down a dirt road in Iowa near some farmland. Didn't kick up any dirt, which leads me to believe there's some electromagnetic something hovering to where it actually didn't kick up any dirt. And I thought that that was a very important detail that he had mentioned. He didn't think anything of it, but as I'm collecting data, I'm going, okay, that's a very important detail. Now, the thing flew through disappeared. Him and his brother both saw it. Okay. I, I believe what he was telling me was the truth. You know, he wasn't on any mind altering drugs or anything such as that. And soon after that, he said, I saw an image of my grandfather who had just recently passed in that same location. Hmm. Yeah, exactly. And Again, he didn't think anything of it, but as I'm collecting data from these experiencers, I'm noticing this trend that people are connecting this paranormal 
after witnessing UAP. Yeah. Um, my, my sister had a similar situation, but she heard our deceased uncle call her name and she was just a young girl and she doesn't believe she's, she's not like one of us where we're, you know, we're in deep with all of this stuff. It's just a, a matter of fact, this happened. So I find that very interesting. Yeah. I don't know. I don't remember what they call them, like hitchhikers or hijackers or something, but people that uh-huh. go to Skinwalker Ranch and other places where a lot of these anomalies happen claim to bring that back with them right. where it, it, and you know, whether it opened a part of their brain where they see things they didn't see before, or there, it does actually follow people. I don't know, but uh, yeah, the orb thing is, is interesting. I've, I've yet to talk about that in any of my writings, but I definitely follow it. And I think it's the ones with the cameras. I, I mean, those are just dust in your lens, but sure. the ones where people see this thing that moves in different ways. Uh, Ryan Sprague actually talked about this in the beginning of his book. Uh, quite a bit because what you just described is described by all of these same people in almost the exact same terms and then yeah associated with that is oftentimes telepathic communication or some sort of energy exchange or yeah moving in and out of time in different ways so it's it's an extremely common thing and, and and likely has something to do with the rest of this i don't know how it's connected but it yeah. seems to be similar at least in some ways yeah, the the, st- the static electricity also is a very commonality, a common finding. I've experienced it myself with the electricity. Um, you know, I, I've gone through, say, a deep meditation also, where I do have my intention, where I actually put myself into this deep meditation, and I have felt somewhat of, say, an aura around me. You know, and I don't know if that's like psychosomatic or if that's actually a physical thing that's occurring. I, you know, I, I, I would like to dig deeper into that too, but yeah, I mean, there, the electricity is a big deal. (laughs) I think, I think functional MRIs, fMRIs Mm -hmm. should be way more used, especially with experiencers, people who have, who have had like a grandma or a a parent abducted who, who think they're hybrids, who have, all kinds of extra sensory abilities and, and mm-hmm. precognition and telepathy. And uh, we should be studying that. And it's hard, obviously, it's very expensive to put someone in an fMRI and you have to have a good study design or you're wasting your time doing that to see what is actually happening in the brains. But who, who's going to pay for that? You know, maybe Robert Bigelow, but you're not going to get the NSF to fund that. <laughs> exactly. And that's where it becomes, you know, frustrating for people who have had these things happen to them, they're just kind of telling their events. Well, this happened to me. Well, you don't, you don't want it to just be left there on the table. We need people such as yourself. And, you know, that all of the scientists that are trying to research this further to actually, you know, re- research the experiencers. I know, you know, there's the pilot, the uh, pilots. Um, I know, gosh, her name, she's going to escape. Alex, Alex Dietrich. Dietrich. Thank you. She was just recently diagnosed wait, with a wait, low wait, grade. Wait, wait. Is it Dietrich? D- Dietrich. Dietrich. Yeah. Ah, I read Alex that wrong Dietrich. in my audio yeah. book. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, that's okay. We can go back. That's <laughs> true. I can fix that. It's audio. You can overlay it. That's true. <laughs> but she was just uh, recently diagnosed with a low grade breast cancer. And oh, no. she's just saying, hey, look, just so you know, this happened. I don't know if it's a connection, but yeah. FYI, you know, so there's, huh. there's a lot of things going on with this. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, there are. And and we need to pay attention to it. And and I think it's I think it's inevitable. I think it's going to happen organically. It's slow and it's painful and it's frustrating, but yeah. there there's there's certain questions that lead to other questions. And as yeah. we answer those, yeah. we start moving down this path and it doesn't, you know, you don't have to have precognition to see that. It seems like an obvious trajectory and mm-hmm. and I feel like just over the last four or five years even we've we've been moving down this path that I think we'll eventually get to hopefully the the experiencers the people who who have the the deepest knowledge uh, to, mm-hmm. it's I think it's also harder to convey and it's easier for people to dismiss, dismiss outright right. yeah. that yeah. knee-jerk reaction with UFOs even people still have that it's like actually we've kind of established in the global zeitgeist that this is real mm-hmm. but they're like um, no, it's right, not. Dr. So, Masters so yeah, then move further the road to experience your aspect. Mm-hmm. I fro- I'm chunking over here. Yeah, it yeah, was really cool. It, it, it felt like they froze you because they didn't want you to to get out whatever that that was. So they do that a lot. Right? Yeah. Hey guys, let me tell you, man. Dr. Masters is here to educate mm-hmm. and regulate. So just hold up up there. We're jamming your radar right now. <laughs> All right, um, Allison. <laughs> Thank you. I feel like this is a good segue to my question, given that you two just remarked that there is a lack of diagnostic testing on individuals um, who are giving you their testimonials. And since you come from a a peer reviewed background, do you have any type of criteria as to what testimonials make it into your, your published work and research? And if not, you know, what is your perspective on that? It yeah, it's it, I'm still on, right? Was yes, I just yeah, chunk in or oh, okay. Loud I didn't clear. know if I was still yep. still here or not. Um yeah, that's it's so hard, you know, and it comes back to this idea of, of what we can consider evidence and and obviously, you know, what we're talking about isn't strict scientific evidence, but it's still would be admitted in a court of law. It's eyewitness testimony. It's observational data. Um, we Ideally, we would have the same observer, the same researcher going and watching all of these abductions happen and seeing what, what takes place. That would be sort of an ethnographic analysis. We don't have that. So we get different reports from different people who experience it differently. And we have to account for that in assessing uh, the merits of these accounts and how we can really identify any sort of uh, I don't know it's 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 a weird aspect of observational studies that that I struggle with but it, I think we just need to re reframe the way we look at it we we can't just apply our standards of evidence to this phenomenon it just doesn't work does that mean we should ignore it no does that mean we should discount everything people say absolutely not but we need to reassess how we think about evidence in the context of this extremely mysterious but real thing. So, so I think we're sort of at, at this kind of there's this disconnect which exists innately with trying to understand something so complex and mysterious with the structure that we've laid in place for the scientific method and for scientific inquiry. Um, I think there's definitely ways to do it, but it's hard um, to, to answer your question specifically. 
I I mostly look at a lot of the JL and Heineck stuff, honestly, like what what he used to assess the 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 reliability of the witness, the strangeness of the encounter. But it's tricky too because if you look at how much it conforms to other accounts, that's also imposing some sort of standard on it that may not let you look at other things that should be considered. So so that's what I mean when we're at this uh, this place with with how we consider evidence is if it doesn't conform, is it an outlier? Did it not happen? Are they lying? Or is it just a real thing that we don't have a way of understanding yet for various reasons? So I I feel like I've talked around that question for five minutes without actually answering it, but I, I just don't think <laughs> I don't think there is an answer right now. I think we're just at a place where we're all trying to figure that out. Well, for me, the takeaway from your answer that I, I really appreciate is it, it does come about all in how we're couching um, the terms as to whether we're referring to it as strict evidence or not. And I, I think it's important for in conversation, making a distinction of when we can be certain about something and when we just have to, to kind of put our hands up and, and just simmer in the uncertainty and not worry about finding what is truth. Yeah. Oh, I like that simmer in the uncertainty. Yeah, very, give it up, give it up for our college professors, baby. <laughs> yeah. And and I think yes. that's that's kind of where we're at. And that, that was a big part of of Jeff Jeff Crapel's conference in Houston too, is trying to find that. He opened it with if if you're not confused, you're not paying attention. And that's so true with all of this. Is, there's just no way there's no way to know. We I, I think I think it's important to sizzle in uncertainty to some extent, but also to try to still find some way of understanding. And it's it, it's a fuzzy line. But I, I think, you know, going back to, to what we were talking about earlier with, with Steph, the more we talk about this, the more we could maybe start to direct what, what makes sense and what doesn't. But I, I don't know. I think it's going to take time. You know what? I think what we've learned from Allison, she's not using an Instapot. She used the word simmer. I don't think she's coming home throwing a whole bunch of ingredients in Instapot. I don't have one either. It up and, yeah. Am I right, Allison? Are you using Instapot? You are correct. You are See correct. that? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. See, doctor? I've been wanting to get one for three years. They're very affordable at this point. I just still haven't pulled the trigger. I don't know why. I have the Ninja, and I love it. I got a fricati last Christmas. Uh, anyway, let's pass it over to Money Nathan before I get to my Lou Elizondo question, uh, or if Nathan wants to pose it, and if he's got something else, what, whatever the case may be. No, I'll let you take that one. Uh, Bye, I bro. think, uh, you know, the last segment there, I mean, this does very much hit at our epistemology, right? Like mm. what we can know, how we know. Uh, which, which also applies to mathematics and physics, too. Totally. It's not just the UFO question. Yeah, and it seems that we're actually like in so many of our disciplines now, we're converging at this conclusion that the things that science has has provided to us have been amazing and great and allow us to advance our knowledge. But at the same time, we're all kind of arriving at this place where it's like, well, how much can we know? Like, what what are the limits of our knowledge? And I think just as you are you know articulated, we're we're struggling with how to kind of bring back into the uh, equation human experience, you know, the, the laboratory of, of, of the world that we all, you know, kind of occupy every day, you know, it doesn't conform to the rules of an actual laboratory. Mm -hmm. and, and, and we've, we've gotten to a place where we've kind of said, well, we 
because we can't put that in a laboratory, it's not actually real. The only things that are real are the things that we can put in under an electron microscope or that we right. can... You know, and I have to deal with that all the time. As anthropologists, we mm -hmm. mostly do observational research because you can't experiment on humans. Right. So we 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 are uniquely positioned to understand that struggle. I, I just want to interject that. Go ahead. No, I think that's great. And and I was going to ask you, since you did go to the uh, Rice University archives of the impossible, I remember you tweeted that you something I'll paraphrase something effective. You were witnessing something historic take place. Yeah, it, it felt like it for sure. You know, what is your takeaway there? Do you think that academia is really kind of now starting to take this a lot more seriously? Are you getting uh, more connected with other colleagues and other disciplines that are really taking this seriously and, and interested in it? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, it's it, it's the same thing you see with everybody, I guess, that there's the knee-jerk reactioners. We need to start coming up with names for these people because there are categories. There's the knee-jerk reactioners. There's the just innately closed-minded people who have no interest in opening their minds at all. There's ones that are sort of paracurious and, and they want to kind of figure stuff out, but they don't know where to start. So it's overwhelming. So they just don't. Um, so within academia, you do fortunately have a lot of people who are innately curious, uh, which I think is one of the reasons why the reception has been overwhelmingly positive. You, you also still have very dogmatic people, and especially when it comes to anything that has been tainted to the extent that it has uh especially with ancient aliens and, and and other things that are just so easy to throw fire at they look what they're saying no it's all crazy and so I, I i know those people too and i think they're doing themselves and our entire field a disservice by just taking that and stereotyping everything else that's happening um but but yeah i think that there is also coming back to what we were just talking about this issue of well if we can't test it in a lab why are we even talking about it? it's not scientific and, and that's not true i deal with this in my classes all the time is you just can't say cause and effect with experimental studies that take place in a lab you have controls you control for every other factor but you can't do that with observational studies and that's fine it doesn't mean that it's any less relevant or you can't learn anything more from it. It just means you can't say A causes B, but you can still uh, test hypotheses. You can still use the, the same alpha values and, and rigor of scientific methods. You just have to ask the questions differently and approach the subject differently. But if you're in the mindset that this all needs to happen in a laboratory environment, that's not going to happen. That's not how UFOs work. So, so either you say, all right, I'm getting off this boat. I'm, I'm taking the exit on this highway. Or you say, let's reimagine the way we understand this and the way we study it. And there's so many people doing that. And, and it's so good to see. Uh, and I think that's just going to continue, especially as more people see that more people are doing it. There's, there's going to be traction. There's going to be sort of this critical mass that happens. And we'll eventually get to the point where you have a lot of people who feel free to use their their resources, maybe even lab resources, to uh, investigate this in ways we hadn't thought of before. And I think it's only going to move us further down the road. Yes. Uh, and by the way, I, I was I should have been there with you. They said that my invitation to that event at Rice uh, was lost in the mail. So. Um, <laughs> 
It was probably the same aliens that wouldn't let you ejaculate in a cup, man. They're probably like shutting you down left and right, dude. I'm I'm sorry, man. They intercepted my mail. Mm -hmm. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, I wanted to ask you about uh, the 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 uh, DNA aspect. We talked about. Uh, Andy asked you about the Lou Elizondo hypothesis about DNA manipulation possibly 70,000 years ago. And you at that time had not heard about that hypothesis. And that's when uh, I, I think he's describing to the missing link or something of that nature. And what I wanted to ask you is, do you think in all of the narratives that you've heard in your study that um, – Perhaps uh, maybe disease could have been uh, inter interjected in something like that. Um, you know that uh, our DNA uh, may have been manipulated for cause. Do you think that's a possibility? I mean, it's always a possibility. I I, I don't necessarily know why or obviously how is is easy because they're here now. If they can go back to 70,000 years, which seems like uh, probably the upper limit, if that's happening, I would guess it's our very distant uh, descendants. But but the bigger issue is, is what's the end game? Why right. do it? Or right. if it were in block time, everything they're doing, they've already done. And any effects of that are already being realized in their time. So there there has to be if, if that if that is a real thing and they are doing that it, it would indicate that there's some other outcome they're trying to achieve which would be right. more in the many worlds interpretation where there's different timelines and some other outcome that they're hoping to accomplish or the simulation hypothesis works with that too if they're they have to come into this simulation to physically do something to see what the effect is it would also fit well within that paradigm so I, I don't know. As as a staunch block universeist, universalist, I, it's hard for me to really jump on board with something like that. But who knows? Everything's on the table. No, nobody knows. So yeah, if, if if there's a reason to pursue that, we should pursue it. And and there's two things. I'm I'm gonna turn it over to Steph for her her question. But the you know you talked about them extracting hydrogen from the water. So with the pollution of water, is there a sort of eco sort of aspect to this that they could be looking at that could be concerning if they are able to extract uh energy from in the water uh, from the water in a way that that scientifically we have not yeah and it's funny you mentioned that too because uh with this particular case it was up confederate gulch which is just just to the the east of uh, uh canyon ferry lake which is just outside of helena here in montana and and when they came down, Udo Artena asked, "Why why didn't you just go to the lake to get your water?" <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, it, it's yeah, it makes sense. Google um, Maps. But yeah. They even said this is this cleaner water, and you know, there's algae, there's human pollutants, especially back then when everybody's mining and smelting and everything. Um, but it was also out of the way. Again, they were trying not to be seen. They didn't know he was there. He was behind a rock working on some other area and happened to hear that humming noise that they make and walked around and saw this thing. They came out and said, Hey, sorry. Um, but yeah, they specifically mentioned that too. And, and in another case that, that happened 
uh, around this area is they were studying grasshoppers and they would come back to the same place and they would take grasshoppers and they would study them. And it indicates some sort of ecological focus too. And, and so often across these accounts, it's about the earth, take care of the earth, take wow. care of the earth. There's, there's very much something about this planet that's important to them, which you would expect more of people who inherit this planet from us. Uh, my, my editor made me take out a part in my book and, and since we're just exchanging ideas and, and this is fine, uh, it was something like if two people are doing the green apple quick step, all you can hope for is that you're the first one to go and the other person doesn't leave a mess behind them when they leave. And, and that's probably how they see us is that we're making this giant mess. And I think that's the focus on the nukes, too, because that's a mess yeah. that can't be cleaned up easily for many, many generations. So so it seems like. Yeah, the focus on this planet, the focus on the ecology, the focus on nukes really indicates that they're about to inherit this planet. They're, they're stakeholders in the future of this planet. And no, I, I, I certainly would think, I mean, their their actions would indicate that as, as I see the foosball table in the back, I'm wondering, could I take on Dr. Michael Masters <laughs> and foosball no. and, and rekindle some of my past? Mm -hmm. Probably not. No, you'll All right. lose. You'll lose right. miserably. <laughs> <laughs> Just because you have the soccer haircut. Anyway, um, I was watching Ted Lasso last night. I was like, I think I could pull that off. <laughs> Apparently you have. Um, do these hominids, do they consume food? Uh, I don't know. In, in a couple of reports, they have kitchens, but I can't think of any anybody like having a meal or anything i don't know that's a good question I, I, love, the I love doing these because I, I still get asked questions that i never thought about um yeah i don't know thought provocation to look into. <laughs> that's why you're here thought provocation all right yeah. we only have uh six minutes left uh let's get stephanie in for her uh her question and then we'll start the, the process of saying goodbye and inviting you back for round two yeah, I definitely need more than six minutes. So next time we're going to have to dive down deeper down the rabbit hole. So my my mother, just so you do know, so you connect all this together, she did say that they had witnessed a craft prior to the one that we saw. So there is potential that it did revisit her, which yeah. leads me to believe, did they do something to her in turn, come back to check on her and then maybe potentially want to do something to us, you know, children in her. No yeah. idea. Just planting that seed because it is something that's been in the back of my mind. And so. that is common. I mean, yeah. so many so many people who, who have been abducted aren't just abducted once. They're abducted throughout their lives and oftentimes with family members, um, yeah. even from a very young age. Uh, it, it's a very common theme throughout this new book. Um, it's cool. it, it, and it. And it you know, it's something somebody expressed to me. The very first UFO talk I did was at the MUFON 50th anniversary symposium a few years ago. And the first person, the first experiencer I ever had the experience of meeting said uh, that that same thing that's been her whole family for generations. They've yeah. they've taken each member from from this family. And again, it, it indicates a focus on not just gametes, but specific ones that uh, seem to do something for them. Like it's easy when, when, when you talk about, um, reproduction and, and hybrids and whatnot, that they're doing something to us, that they're mm -hmm. manipulating us, but it really seems like they're doing it for themselves. There, there's something right. about our genes yep. that help them yep. with whatever problems they're having. 
And, and that's what I was thinking also is, are they extracting our eggs so that they can do a, a hybrid of themselves? You know, I mean, that's crossed my mind many times. So mm-hmm. something to think about later. Again, we could go, <laughs> we no, could go for a few hours here I, talking about this. So I've said on this show many times, because I don't have a scientific background to draw on to really develop theories in that way. But I'll look at common sense things like right. Nathan knows by now how my brain works. Um, and I've said they see a relative value in our DNA. I don't know what that value is, but they clearly find a value in it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, that's the most, uh, I mean, patterns tell stories, and that's the most recurring pattern in all of this is the gametes. There, There's something about reproduction. There's something about our genes that are important to them, and the fact that they told Jim Penniston that, he didn't have a, Along, however, we perceive time. Time was different in that sphere of influence, as he calls it. But there's there's clearly something about <laughs> genes that help them, and they they said that they said mm-hmm. that straight up. Right, patterns well, are facts, and facts are data. So, yeah, yeah look at that, man. Hear that, girl. Ha! <laughs> I want to say this yep. about football. I used to de- I used to deploy to these joint bases, and I'd get together with another pair of rescue guy, and we would start to really get work on our foosball and start to wreck shop right until the French guys came over. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and when the French guys came over to the, to the, the foosball table, we could not defend those guys and they ran us off, man. But it was, it was it's the fun. same when you play them in real soccer too, as I'm it turns sure. out. Sure. <laughs> yeah. No, I did a dig in Southern France and we would square off the boners versus the stoners. Mm-hmm. Cause that was a, a, a paleo guy I would do the bones. I talk about this in my new book too. <laughs> the editor didn't make me take this part out, but then we would square off against the stoners who do the lithic tools and stuff, and we we had some epic matches. But the, the French are very good at anything football related. It's, it's, it's amazing. Man. That's what I love about soccer is it really brings the people under like why I love the World Cup. It just brings the world together. You know, yeah. it's one sport. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. Yeah, I had to leave. I was in uh, Paris in 1998, the year the French won the World Cup, and mm-hmm. I left two days before they won the damn thing. Oh. I'm at home watching this party on the Champs Elysees. Like, oh, I should be there. Why didn't I just delay my flight? Yep. I was there for. I've been there for two Tour de France finishes too, uh, just randomly. I don't even know oh how that happened, but I'm a big Tour de France fan too. Love that. And yeah, that was the big uh, World Cup for Zidane and Thierry Henry, I believe. Yeah, I actually predicted, go back and check my damn Facebook if you don't believe me, but I predicted that France would win the last World Cup the very first game. Nathan, let's let's go back and check this because I don't. This Do guy looks a little. Um, I don't yeah, know. A little sketchy. It's raising some check. questions for me. Like he's got the Biff Tanner <laughs> Sports <laughs> Almanac in the back. <laughs> Doctor Masters, I'll tell you what, man. It was an absolute blast having you on, man. Yeah, it was fun. Uh, appreciate the invites. Great chatting with all y'all. Thank yeah. you. Likewise. Looking forward to your book. Yeah. Should yeah. be soon. Actually, I think it'll be June first, just a nice. couple weeks out. Yeah, it's yeah, it's in the last. It's in its last throws. What's Does it have can a title at this point? Yeah. yeah, thank you, Nathan. Yeah, it's called the extra tempestrial model, and yes. and like I've been saying, it, it looks more at the abduction aspect of the phenomenon because I, I do think it's time to to really talk about that. Nice. I love it, man. I can't. Yeah. That, so when when that book, you know, at some point when you have time. Uh, and you want to start going on shows because we don't want to like bug people to come back. Although pretty much everybody who's come on once comes back 
at some point and they sort of become part of the cab fam. We would love to have you on to talk about that book because uh, I know there's I, I have more questions. Deb, our researcher, had questions. And right now she's probably at the wedding glaring at people. She's typing an there. email to you right yeah. now. I'm sure. <laughs> Deb, yeah. You know, it's funny. Like I just I, I try to read the audio book before I format it just to make sure, you know, catch any errors that you only catch if you're reading it. And I was reading through it thinking about how I can't wait to talk to people about it on shows like this once they've read it, you know, like to have, have conversations. And a lot of stuff's been coming up organically even before it's out. Um, I, I did an interview with Soviko Visionaries, I think, uh, from Russian television. And she was asking me all these questions that were exactly what the book was about the new one in the same order and i'm like did did you like sneak into my computer and read this book like but i think that's just happening naturally like we're like i said we're kind of just as we answer some questions we're asking more and and it seems like we're kind of going in that direction uh somebody a, a a journalist in a different country was even asking things that just took it to that place it was great um so yeah i'm excited i'm excited to talk about it. my long story short happy to come back on it Awesome. Yeah, she may have remote viewed you. I'm not. I'm not saying that she did, but, um, but yeah, we'll we'll have you back on uh, for that. Um, and yeah, we'll we'll kick that around. I think you just sold like let's say one, two, three, four books right here, and that doesn't include Deb and and our humorous Kevin, who you missed because he would have de- he would have definitely had you rolling, man. He's so and he's also loves to look at the UAP phenomenon through a historical perspective, particularly oh, ancient nice. history. So, yeah. yeah. Uh, and I'm a, I'm a history major. It's just that I'm a meathead, so we just never got there. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, uh, on, behalf of, on behalf of Allison and Money Nathan and Steph, this is DJ and saying goodbye, Dr. Masters. Thank you. Peace out. One love. We'll and we'll Peace. see you down the road. We're always wondering what's up around the bend. Take care. Peace. Bye. Have a good night. <laughs>